This episode is brought to you by Square. If you run a restaurant or business, Square has the tools to help you stay connected to your customers. Shift your business and navigate this uniquely challenging time. Learn more at square.com slash go slash snacky. Hello, and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. On today's episode, we continue our ongoing series about the coronavirus's effects on the food industry and head south to Kentucky. Lindsay Ostasek is co-founder, managing director, and mentor of the We Initiative. As the pandemic sent millions of restaurant industry workers to the unemployment lines, Lindsay connected with her longtime partner, Thomas Bolton, who is a diplomat at Maker's Mark. Together, they helped roll out the Restaurant Workers Relief Program and the Restaurant Reboot Relief Program. We discuss how the Lee Initiative pivoted and how brands can truly support businesses during these times. Later on in the episode, we head to Los Angeles to talk to Black Crystal Wolf Kids frontman Jeff Miller, who are the world's first indie rock tribute band. Jeff plays his pandemic anthem for us and talks about what he misses most, which is you, the audience. Thank you for tuning in. Sit back, relax, and here's another episode of Snacky Tunes from Heritage Radio Network. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky Tunes.
Hello, and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. Uh, thank you for joining us in our ongoing coverage of the coronavirus and how it is affecting the restaurant industry and how different groups are stepping up to combat it and to help support their local colleagues and national restaurant heroes. I have Lindsay Ostasek of the Lee Initiative and Thomas Bolton of Maker's Mark. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Let's go back a little bit because the Lee Initiative, of which is currently uniting a large number of restaurants all across the nation, wasn't born in the pandemic as some of the initiatives we've been talking to. This actually was formed a, a number of years ago. Um, Lindsay, can you talk a little bit about the history uh, and the work that you did? Yeah. Um, so three years ago now, um, the Me Too movement started to hit our industry pretty hard. Um, I was the general manager of 610 Magnolia with Chef Edward Lee. Um, and it honestly was born out of a conversation we were having in the office. And, you know, we all of this terrible stuff was, you know, being brought to light about our industry. We talked about that for a while, but we also talked about how, you know, for every bad chef, there was an army of good ones. Um, and that, you know, the, the picture that was being painted of our industry was not, not the one that we had experienced. So we decided to start a nonprofit foundation dedicated to mentorship um, for young women in the culinary industry, where we would send them to work with uh, restaurateurs across the country who were running their companies with fairness, who had risen the ranks to chef and owners. Um, you know, we provided mentorship. We took them to the James Beard House to cook, um, did a lot of, like, business and media training for them. And, you know, our focus had just always been to address any issue that we saw come up in our industry um, in a quick and forward-thinking way. And fast forward, <laughs> four weeks ago, that became feeding our industry as a whole. So... And Thomas, when did Maker's Mark get involved with the Lee Initiative? Uh, Maker's Mark has been involved with the Lee Initiative since the very beginning. Uh, I actually had an email come across my desk from Lindsay and Edward Lee uh, telling us about the Lee Initiative and asking for sponsorship. And at Maker's Mark, we don't uh, cut a check and walk away. We partner instead of sponsor. And so we heard what they had to say, and it actually lines up with, with Maker's Mark very well. We've had women in leadership making decisions that impact the brand globally since 1953. And so any time that we have a chance to partner with anybody that's kind of pushing the same mission we are, we jump to it. And so it was three years ago uh, when Lindsay and I, I think we sealed the partnership, and then an hour later they announced them in peace. So it was very quick. And after that, Lindsay and I have been talking at least once a week for the past three years. Incredible. And, and let's focus on the word partnership, because I think that you're right. So many companies that work with brands uh, maybe just expect a check and for them to scoot to the back and maybe just be a logo on a flyer or some social media pusher, etc. What does, and this is to both of you, a true partnership look like when it's going to support these issues? And, and what aspects do you need like, trust, et cetera, to maintain a good partnership? I'll speak first from, from the Maker's Mark side, and then Lindsay can take it from the Lee Initiative side. But 
Um, a good partnership, and you, you said in the question, you, you almost answered it. it. It takes trust and understanding each other. And we, we at Makers Mark do not want to, when we see something that we believe in, we don't want to just be a name on a flyer um, or in the background. We want to help you by using our brand power to grow and support whatever mission is that you are taking on. And with the Lee Initiative, it was empowering employment and women in mentorship. And now it's shifted from that to feeding the service industry, which is also near and dear to our heart because without, you know, the rock star servers and bartenders and chefs, bourbon wouldn't be where it is today without them hand selling it. And they're family and you take care of family. And so the partnership grows and evolves. And it's, it's knowing that Chef Lee and Lindsay are going to, do everything the right way and trusting them that they are. And that way it coincides with our uh, goals as a bourbon brand and their goals as a nonprofit. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's really just it for us. It was, you know, we, we wanted a partner that we trusted, but we also wanted a partner who was already living, um, you know, practicing what we were preaching, essentially. Um, and as Thomas said, Makers has had women in leadership roles since the very beginning of their company. Um, and we knew that they would be invested in our program. Uh, you know, they meet with each mentee. They do all of our pairings at the Beard House. They actually, um, our mentees come down and make a barrel of bourbon at Makers Mark. It's the first thing that they do in the program. So that by the end of it, their bourbon has aged enough that they can um, serve it at the Beard House. So. Incredible. Uh, so let's talk to the four weeks, uh, four weeks ago. Lindsay, maybe you can describe from the restaurant point of view um, what the week was like heading into March 17th and what you were feeling. Uh, we're up in New York and we have a very specific uh, memory of how everything just began to constrict, but what was it like um, in your neck of the woods? Yeah, so we're in Kentucky, um, and typically in Kentucky, things kind of roll down a lot slower. <laughs> so we knew that there were places where restaurants were closing, but we really didn't think it was going to hit us for a few weeks, at least. And then that all changed when on Sunday night, the governor announced that on Monday at 5 o'clock, every restaurant in Kentucky was going to be closed. Um, <clears throat> We didn't, like I said, we knew it was coming, but we did not see it coming that quickly. So, uh, you know, the next morning, well, actually that night, you know, I hopped on the phone with Thomas and with Edward Lee, and we're like, okay, what are we going to do here? Because everyone we know is about to be unemployed as of tomorrow. Um, so we looked around in our resources, and we're like, okay, we have all this food, we have a location, and we have people that all they want to do is cook. So we essentially in 24 hours cooked 250 hot meals with what we had in our walk-in. We placed orders and sent out everyone on our staff to scavenge uh, diapers and formula and paper goods, and we turned my wine studio into a grocery store. Um, with our partnership with Makers, again, we called and asked you know, if they could support us, and they said, of course. But they also showed up to help us run this relief center the first day. So the restaurants closed. The very next day, we opened the relief center. Um, you know, we were set to open at 5 o'clock, and at 4.30, 250 people were lined up in their cars, and we caused a traffic jam. <laughs> um, 
so we saw immediately that the need was there. Um, we also saw immediately or realized immediately that this was not, you know, unique to Kentucky. This was not unique to Louisville. And we needed to do this anywhere that we possibly could. So the next day we hopped on a call with our friends at Makers who had this brilliant idea to get us funding from on-premise events that were not going to happen this quarter. You know, every every location has or every city has a branding budget for on-premise events and sampling. So we essentially scraped the funds from that and we did cash infusions in restaurant partners um, in 19 cities, uh, allowed them to rehire their staff and start operating as a Lee Initiative Relief Kitchen. Thomas, what, you know, for as much as you can share about what that looks uh, behind the scenes, what are those conversations? Because there's so many people that are writing the rules as this goes along and, and understanding what role brands and brand sponsorship or, or brand support looks like. What were the conversations and discussions you had to take your marketing budget and redirect that to aid? Well, it was, um, it was a, in Kentucky, and overall it was a very quick conversation. Um, I, I worked 10 years in the service industry as a bartender. I mean, these are my friends, the, you know, my best friends, family to me. Um, so we knew they needed help, and, and makers, one thing makers does, we, we do the right thing. And we knew that this was the right thing. And once, I believe, once the success of, of Kentucky, which was immediate, happened, then, then it was like, hey, this is what we need to do. Who can help do this? And then once those markets started saying, hey, we can help, then Lindsay and Edward reached out to chefs that they trust because this is a large operation to take. And, you know, Makers has partners all over, but we, if they're going to operate the Lee Initiative model, then Edward and Lindsay need to trust them to operate the right way. So they actually pick the chefs in all the markets uh, that they go to. And so once the success was there, it was very easy to do. And I think one thing to say, there were a lot of people that had a lot of great ideas about what to do, but and, and on the corporate side, things move slow. This was the time when they didn't. This was a great idea, and we were able to act on it. And and from there, it, Lindsay says this all the time, we've been building the plane while we're flying it uh, on both sides, the initiative side and on the maker side, because this is an unprecedented time for both of us. I think that's a really important distinction about things unfolding in real time, because Leadership takes all different types of aspects, um, and leading on uncharted waters is probably one of the scariest. Um, there's a lot of reputation on the line. There's a lot of areas for mistakes. How have you two both found courage to make these decisions without really any other roadmap in front of you, both from the hospitality restaurant side and, and working at Maker's Mark and being a leader in the industry about how to support the people that supported you? Yeah, so, I mean – in all honesty, I think most restaurant people, I mean, this is kind of, that's one thing about working in a restaurant. You, you learn to act on the fly. No, no situation ever unfolds exactly perfectly in a restaurant. Every single night you're going to have someone walk in that's hyper allergic to peanuts or they're a vegan at a beast feast, and you have to act quickly. Um, honestly, for us, it was just we looked at what resources we did have, which was we had some funding. 
We had a ton of food. There was food in every market available because everything closed at once. And we had an army of people who wanted to cook, you know. And that's one thing about restaurant people, too. They don't want to stay home. Like, all they want to do is work and cook. So if I were sitting at home in the middle of this, um, I'd probably be losing my mind, frankly. <laughs> yeah, and, and from the, the maker side, uh, this was one of those things where it was uh, – I was lucky enough that I was able to partner with Lindsay, put my head down, and work hard. And my boss, Valerie Netherton, really helped um, handle the funding from the corporate side and dealing with all the bosses up that way so that way we could impact and – make a quick impact and help people on the ground. So it was a team effort through Makers Mark um, with me, my boss Valerie, and then all the other markets, all 19 other markets have come together. There's someone from Makers Mark at every market that's there to help. And, and they want it there. Almost everybody that does what I do as a distillery diplomat uh, has been in the service industry for, you know, decades. So they, it's their family and their markets too. And it's, I don't know so much as it's, courage to go out and do it as it's just the right thing to do and so you you just do it yeah and there's no i mean yes we all were working 18 hours a day i mean our nonprofit is tiny we i was the only employee and then shefley you know is my partner but it's just the two of us on our side um so you know it's during the day we were making calls trying to find sponsors trying to find partners and at night we were writing policies for you know, I never thought that I would spend my day or my evening, like, reading CDC policies for keeping people safe in the middle of a pandemic, you know, because we had to have these guidelines set up to send to our partners because, yes, our goal is to help keep your restaurant open and rehire your staff. Our goals are to feed your community and be there. But number one is we want to keep you safe and do it effectively. What do you think the – I mean, it's, sometimes it seems so opaque just to start at the beginning. You know, it's easy to look at where you've come four weeks later and night after night reading CDC policy. But as the pandemic continues to spread and hits smaller communities or rural communities and moves across the country, when people are really starting out, Lindsay, what advice do you give them on how to just get going? Yeah, so really just start with what you have. You know, look around and figure out what resources you have that can help. Um, again, we're not like, no, we've never run a relief center before, but we all know how to cook and how to feed people. So we're not doing anything different. It just looks different. <laughs> um, but yeah, just really looking around at your resources and utilizing what you have, um, not being afraid to reach out to the community and ask for help. Um, while yes, we do have, you know, corporate sponsors and a lot of large donors, you know, the community matches have actually you know, almost, I mean, completely matched it, really. Yeah. It's, you know, and these are in $5 increments and, you know, $10 increments because one thing about this program is every single person has a restaurant that they love or a server that they see every Sunday when they take their kid for pizza. Like, every single person is touched by the restaurant community, um, especially in our region. I mean, it's, it's so woven into our culture that it, it wasn't hard to ask people to help. And people really want to help you. They just don't know how. So if you can tell someone what resources you have and what you're going to do with them, it, chances are someone's going to reach out and help you. 
I think that's an amazing point of just giving people a way or guiding the way people help where they don't feel like they know how even they want to. It's such an important distinction to be like, just give us five bucks or bring your canned goods and we'll turn that into something wonderful. It's such an incredible insight. Um, in the past interviews that we've done, uh, we spoke with Chris Shepard of um, Southern Smoke Foundation, Devin DeWolf of Feed the Frontlines New Orleans. The topic that is always probably one of the most difficult to face down are, are the hard decisions that have to come in this because you really can't help everyone. And because there is no roadmap, uh, you're faced with seemingly bad or worse decisions. And I'd be curious to kind of know like what difficult decisions you faced while doing this that in t inside you know that it was tough, but you did it because it would have been impossible to move forward or help everyone that needed help. Yeah, I mean, the hardest part for me, you know, is every time we launch a kitchen in a new city, um, we do have other cities reach out and say, you know, I want to do this here, what can I do? And I'm like, well, I don't have funding for everyone. Um, and again, there was no, we didn't know, we didn't exactly know what we were doing. We were building this plane. And so we had to work with people, you know, we could never do this without our partners. We also had to do it really quickly. And so we had to work with chefs that we had relationships with before um, because we had to be able to trust them. Uh, the hardest part for me is, you know, when someone does send a message, you know, especially from Instagram that says, like, I'm a single mom in Cape Cod and there are no programs here. Who can help me? Like, do you have any advice? And it's, I don't. I don't know, you know, I don't know anyone doing relief in your area. Um, <clears throat> And it's, it's heartbreaking. You know, I wish that we could open thousands of these because they're needed in every city, but we just don't have the funding for it. And, and Thomas, I'm sure that you are getting so many requests day in, day out just for support. How do you make those decisions or, or where do you hold the line in order to focus your resources? So it's, it's on the same line with with Lindsay, we're partners, so Lindsay and I, Edward, I mean, we talk about, you know, where's the next place to go? How much money do we have? Because, you know, we're in 19 locations right now, and we want to keep them funded too because people are counting on them to open up. And so really it's, it's a combination of partnership and decision-making between both parties as to where to go. But it's, it, I mean, like Lindsay says, I get the Instagram messages too, and, you know, they, everyone needs help right now. And, and we're trying our best to help as many people as we can, but it's, it's, a hard, it's a hard conversation to have, honestly. And, and they're hard decisions to make. And you just kind of grit your teeth and bear it and make the decision that you think's best and hope that we just move faster than everyone thinks is going to move and, and we're taking care of as many people as possible. If you could speak to other brands or other liquor portfolios that are looking to get into the game um, and follow your lead, what advice would you give to them? That's a great – I've actually never been asked that question before. That's a great question. Um. I think the the best advice I could give would be to 
listen to the community that you're trying to help. Figure out what they need and make that happen because if you're going in there thinking you know what's best, you, you probably don't. And right now people need, people know what they need and it's, you know, and they've helped the bartenders and restaurant industry has helped all these brands so much that it's time for us to listen and help them. And I think it'll be different from market to market what the needs are. And I think listening and then being able to act in a, in a quick, <coughs> responsible way is, uh, is the best advice I can give. Well, I think, too, like every single brand, you know, has asked a chef to volunteer their time for charity. You know, every chef in the country has been asked, you know, will you come and cook for my March of Dimes fundraiser or will you come and cook for my auction? So I think as a brand, too, think about the people in the restaurant industry that you have asked to do something for you and realize that people in the restaurant industry are really notoriously bad for asking for help, but they really need it right now. So call those people and say, what can I do for you? Just a good point, Lindsay. So many people come from a point of pride um, and a point of just gritting and bare, and I think that's woven into the fabric of being a chef and working in the restaurant industry. Similar question, what advice would you give to chefs um, and communities who are not used to asking for help? What would you tell them to maybe get over or, or get comfortable with in the coming days, weeks, and months? Yeah, I mean, that's a really hard one. I I am also notoriously bad at asking for help. <laughs> but I, you know, really just, and that's one thing with these relief centers is, you know, the, what's important to us is that the food that we're serving is similar to the caliber of the food that we serve to the public on a regular basis. Um, we want people to feel good when they come here and say hi and you know, not be ashamed of being here. So it's it's not a soup kitchen. You know, the food is incredible. The chefs put just as much time and heart into the food that they're preparing for to pass out for free as they do for their customers. Um, and, I mean, just, you know, just learn to ask for help if you need it. Um, there's no – and that's the thing, too, with these drops. The first week it was – you know, families and people that we didn't really know that were maybe more vulnerable to the situation. Um, as the weeks go on, we're seeing people that we know, that we love, that we, you know, and they're accepting aid for the first time in their life. And it's, you know, you want to make it a positive experience. So, you know, we try to do something every day that is familiar to people and will make them happy. So we'll hand out coffee from one of our local roasteries or we'll hand out gelato from, you know, companies in town. Just something that makes you feel normal and good. And it, you know, it's not – you shouldn't feel like you're accepting charity. We want to feed you. You're also giving us something to do so we don't go crazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a two-way street. Uh yeah. One of the other incredible parts of this initiative um, is also bringing awareness to people who, are, uh, who can access this type of relief. Can you talk about your partnership with Aaron Sanchez and what he's doing to bring awareness? Yeah. Um, so at each of our locations we do, um, I think it's translated, our, what we're providing is translated into six languages in each region. Um, those are the dominant um, immigrant languages spoken in each of the communities. 
Um, and so we want everyone to know that we're here for everyone. Everyone is welcome. Um, you know, we had a question really early on, and it was like, you know, if I have to bring a paycheck sub and an ID, like, what if I don't have those things? Well, no one's going to turn you away. We don't really need your ID. We just needed something, you know, some form of, like, show me your schedule or whatever you had, just something that says you worked in a restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> um, One time I had a bartender show me a picture of him behind the bar that his establishment had posted of him. And, like, he was like, I don't have anything else but this picture of me behind my bar. It's like, that's perfect. Um, so with Aaron, the big thing that he's doing is letting, you know, letting the Hispanic community know that we're here for them, too. Please come. You're welcome. We love you. You are just as, you know, just as much a part of this restaurant community as, you know, a famous chef. You know, it's, everyone is welcome, and we treat everyone the same. It's incredible. And, and just to make sure that we hit it, um, can you rattle off the cities that you are located in and providing help? Yes. So let's go. <laughs> we are in, okay, we're in Louisville, Kentucky, Lexington, Kentucky. We're in Atlanta. We are in New Orleans. We are in Brooklyn. We are in Boston. We are in Detroit, we are in Seattle, Denver, L.A., Oakland, Cincinnati, Cincinnati Tampa, Tampa uh, New, Albany, Indiana. New Albany, Indiana, Houston, Texas, uh, Nashville, Tennessee, as of tomorrow. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, I think that's. And you did micro grants. Though. Yeah, and so we another thing that we did is we had a little bit of excess funding in Kentucky because people, you know, they really came out to support. And so, oh, we're in D.C. as well. Um, and D.C. is also a site for one of our micro grants. Um, we, you know, we had an additional $40,000. And so we're like, what can we do with this? We can't really open another market right now. So we looked around at what people were doing already to feed their community and we it was actually a really fun Friday we just called them and said hey we really appreciate what you're doing we can't take you on as a partner but here's a ten thousand dollar grant keep doing good with it um, and so we did that with a program with Chef JJ in Harlem called Field Trip um, and then a group uh, Chef Yang in DC we also did it with a group in New Albany called Pints and Union who was feeding first responders. And then additionally, who else? Oh, Kelly English down in Memphis who was feeding first responders and restaurant workers there as well. So if I ever see a call from Lindsay or anyone in the restaurant who sees a call from you, just pick up the phone. And no yeah. one's going to turn your call ever. Um, so, so this will air... Uh, maybe a week or so after we have this interview and who knows what the landscape is, but currently they're beginning to talk about reopening certain states, um, certain cities. What do you feel the future looks like for you in the coming weeks and months about how you continue to support the community, possibly return to normal, whatever that normal is? What are your guesses? And we won't hold you to it, but just as two people who are on the very front line bleeding edge of this, I'd be curious to know just what you think. Yeah, so we talk about this a lot <laughs> because 
especially with the kitchens being in different regions, like we feel like the West Coast kitchens, like we'll be able to close and reopen as a restaurant sooner than we will here. You know, so it's going to happen. And I don't think everyone's going to close and open at the same time. It's going to be a, a wave of reopening. We spend a lot of time talking about what in the hell that looks like. Um, you know, it's not like we're going to open up cities and all of a sudden everyone's going to show up to a restaurant. You know, it's it's not going to be as busy. It, you know, service is probably going to look very different. Um, I know for myself, like at 610, we're a tiny, tiny 12-table restaurant. Um, and we do, you know, six-course meals every night by reservation only. I would venture to say that that's not high on everyone's list for what they're going to do after this pandemic. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I think we're going to see restaurants adapt, and I still think there's going to be a lot of carryout. Um, we talk a lot about what what are we going to do to help in the rebuilding phase and what's going to be necessary. To be perfectly honest, we have no idea what that is. Um, you know, we're, something we're working on right now is like, do we try to get antibody tests for everyone? Like, would it make some, would it be easier to open if you knew that you, you know, would you be more likely to come back to work if you knew that you were, um, you know, had some immunity? Um, we talk about like, you know, we, and the thing is like, we, fo we focus on working with restaurant owners or restaurant workers, not so much owners, because we honestly just don't have enough money. You know, you see these funds that have popped up. I mean, down to like the PPP loan. Mm -hmm. uh, we, you know, we don't have that kind of money, so it's not like we can just, you know, give out cash infusions to help. But we're, you know, talking about do we help in a way that's like, you know, can we do zero interest loans to people to help them, you know, restock their pantry and buy food for whenever they can reopen? Uh, you know, we have no idea. We're trying to figure it out. We want to be a part of the rebuilding process. We just don't know how yet. And, and Thomas, similar question to you. I mean, it is a fine, fine line for support and then business as usual, especially with experiential budgets and, and marketing budgets. Um, what have you discussed or, or what are you thinking um, about how you move with caution to support but also know that there are just going to be some people who kind of want to get back to normal, whatever that might be again. Yeah, that's an that's a excellent question. And, you know, you and right before that question, you talked about how, you know, this might air a week from recording it, and we have no idea what that landscape will be. Um, that's kind of where we're at. I, I, I know that everybody wants to get back to what normal was a month ago. Um, I don't know how possible that will be. And and what restaurants are going to look like, what the service is going to look like. You know, your your large format events, sporting events, concerts, and stuff like that, how, how are those going to look? Are those even going to happen? Um, all those, those are all unknowns and questions. And so right now the goal <clears throat> is to help where we can help right now and when we have a second to breathe and look up and look ahead to that future, uh, that's great, but we still don't know what it's going to be. We can speculate all we want and create plans all we want, um, but each market is going to be different. Like Lindsay said, the West Coast will probably open before the 
the East Coast so we can see what's going on over there and maybe we can be a little bit better planned. But, right, and especially the first two weeks when this happened, our Lindsay, Edward, and I talked, and the original plan was to be open for two weeks, and that has changed drastically. And, um, and you know, it was after that first week we were able to stick our heads up, you know, out of the water and look around and see, hey, we need to do – we need – to be able to go longer. And I think that's kind of what everybody in the, the spirits industry is, is doing right now. It's, you can predict all you want, but more it's a day-to-day figuring it out right now. Um, before I get to my final question, is there anyone else on both sides that you just want to thank? Um, I feel like there's so many people that just make things happen and just – I know, Thomas, you called out your boss who helped navigate those waters, but just in these times, is there anyone else you would just like to say thank you and give them the recognition for their tireless efforts during these times? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, we could have never done this without our chef partners all over the country, you know. We gave them a template and we gave them some funding, but they're the ones that are running their own ship you know we could never do this without them and they're all doing an incredible job um we're so grateful to them also i mean valerie netherton from makers rob samuels from makers without them this would never have been a reality um you know and we're just so grateful that they cared enough about the service industry that you know they they were able to help us um obviously chef lee who i <laughs> we've I don't think either of us slept for the first two weeks that this happened. I don't think that we've ever you know, we've worked together for the past five years, but I don't think that we have ever spent this much time together <laughs> in our lives and I'm really grateful um to have him as a partner. Um I mean Thomas sitting next to me, I feel like I also talk to at least several hours a day at this point in my life. <laughs> um but yeah, just everyone involved in this, we're just, I, I don't think I'll ever be able to express the gratitude that I have for each and every one of them. Yeah, and from my end, obviously we mentioned Valerie, Rob Samuels, you know, there are I think, 19 Makers Mark diplomats uh, across the world, and most of them are in the United States, and they're all doing their part, the chef partners, the volunteers. And then I want to thank all the people coming through to get aid and and it's it's service industry people. They always greet you with a smile. Most of the time they're smiling, but most of the time, you know, in this quick one-minute interaction, hey, do you need more volunteers? What can I do to help? Uh, that's the service industry as a whole. And um, and I think it's like that in every market. And so people, yes, they're accepting aid, but they also want to help. Anything they can do. We've had people pull up and are like, hey, I have an extra gallon of milk, and they'll trade, you know, they'll hand us a gallon of milk while they get their boxes. Um, that's the type of people that we're seeing day in, day out, and we'd like to thank everybody. I'd like to thank everybody that's volunteered, asked to volunteer, dropped off the three extra cans of tuna they had in their house that they weren't going to use. Um, that's what this community is, uh, this service and restaurant, the service industry community. And um, right now, they're hurting and need help, but they also want to be the ones helping people. And so thank you to all of them. I think you both touched on what I would like to end at and where we try to end everything is that six weeks ago, 
all of our lives were completely different and the absolute pivot or change or upside down world that we're living in is phenomenal at best. But intermixed with all that, there's a lot of beauty and hope. And I would love to hear your final thoughts on where you find hope in all of this. Yes. I mean, for me, you know, I, I always knew that restaurants were important to people. I didn't realize, you know, now I know how important they are to people. Um, you know, I, I understand that what we all do is important to people and it's, you know, people are missing that people, people don't know what to do without having a place to go and celebrate or having someone cook for them. Um, it makes us realize, it makes me at least realize how important, um, this whole industry is to our culture. Um, you know, it makes me see the good in people who have donated their time, their goods, you know, I, I haven't encountered one person in this entire journey that hasn't, you know, the first thing that they said was, how can I help? What can I do? And I think that, you know, as a, you know, I see the good in people and I see how important, you know, supporting one another is, you know, in our community as a whole. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I cry from gratitude at least 10 times a day right now, <laughs> which may be that I have never taken time to process what exactly is happening. But I also just think that it's, I mean, I there's so much beauty in, you know, the way that the community is banding together. And I, I know that this industry is going to be hit extremely hard, but I do, I do believe that we're going to come through this, and I believe that we're going to be more united than ever. Yeah, and, and just to echo Lindsay, I think where I'm finding hope is is the way that our community, the restaurant community, has come together uh, to support each other. Um, here in Louisville, uh, we see people posting online that they need something, and it's either go to 610 or people come up and like, hey, I had these people ask for something. They don't have a car. Can I pick up this much stuff to deliver it to them? Seeing that, you know, hope also comes from being able to work with Lindsay um, and seeing the drive and the passion to help feed as many people uh, as she can. Uh, just to brag on her, sorry, I'm going to do it. Uh, you know, when, when we all get frustrated, what she says is, I just want to feed people. So cut through everything else. This is what I want to do. This is how I'm going to do it. That's the goal, and I'm going to get there. Um, that's where you see a lot of hope as well. And Lindsay is just one of many people doing that thing. Incredible. Um, so for some nuts and bolts, where can people go to get more information, find local pickup spots, um, places to volunteer? Um, yeah. So if you go to our website, leeinitiative.org, Every location is listed. You can click on it and see exactly what their hours are, when you can pick up, how you can donate to them. Um, you know, whether most of them have Amazon wish lists set up, like, hey, my area really needs diapers in size six, and you can literally just go on and order the diapers and have them shipped directly to the restaurant. Um, so you can find all of that at leeinitiative.org. Um, Follow Lee Initiative on Instagram. They do a great job updating menus. Um, of what's going to be served in individual markets when they get sent to them. And then, you know, they also let you know, hey, Nashville opened 
is opening tomorrow. So follow them on Instagram as well. Amazing. Uh, well, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Snacky Tunes. Uh, we'll be continuing our coverage on the coronavirus pandemic and how it's affecting the restaurant industry. We will be playing a song from the archives, and then we'll be back next week with another episode. Lindsay and Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so thank much, you for, so having much for having us. Be safe and be well. This episode is brought to you by Square. We all know that this is an incredibly challenging time for our friends running restaurants and small food businesses. With social distancing in place, people are staying home and eating in, and restaurants have had to pivot to pickup and delivery only. 
HRN would usually be recording our podcast from our studio inside Roberta's. But since they've had to close their dining room, they've ramped up their frozen pizza production, set up a wine and grocery shop, and seen their delivery orders skyrocket. Like Roberta's, many restaurants have been changing offerings day by day as they figure out how to best serve their customers. If you run a restaurant or a small business, Square has the tools to help you adapt. One of these tools is the Square online store. It lets you set up a free online ordering page with curbside pickup and local delivery so you can keep customers safe. You can deliver orders yourself or integrate with delivery partners. Its order hub lets you manage all your incoming orders in one place, no matter which delivery partners you choose to use. Square has all the tools to help you stay connected to customers, no matter where they are. See everything that's available by visiting square.com go snacky. Hello and welcome back to Snacky Tunes uh, with our ongoing coverage of the COVID-19 pandemic. Jeff Miller, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thanks so much, Greg. I'm super, 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 super excited to be here. Me too. I mean, this is the first band that I am recording in quarantine. I'm in, well, I'm at my parents' house in the outskirts of Philadelphia, and you are coming to us live from Los Angeles. Live from uh, the very heart of Los Angeles, right near LACMA, the farmer's market, the Grove. Uh, yeah, right in, the, right in the center of the city. Incredible. Um, describe describe the scene for us. I, I can tell you that the suburbs are pretty quiet, but on the East Coast, it's a little, with New York and New Jersey overshadowing everything, it's a little bit hard to get a sense of what the LA pandemic uh, affecting of the citizens is like. Yeah, I mean, I think thankfully we haven't had the same like hearing ambulances all the time uh, sort of sense of dread as uh, as I've heard from my friends in New York. Um, I have been pretty hardcore in terms of not leaving the house or not really going lots of places. Uh, my girlfriend's mom is immunocompromised. We were really on top of it early. Um, and so, you know, we've gone and visited her and dropped things off and visited my dad in the valley and dropped things off. And uh, we actually went to a drive-in movie once. That was our sort of escape. But we really haven't been to many stores so it's sort of hard to say, like the couple times we've gone to stores, um, you know, there have been some people who haven't been wearing masks or who haven't been social distancing as much as we'd like. Uh, and I go for a walk in my neighborhood every day. I live in a pretty quiet walking neighborhood. We wave to each other and give ourselves six feet. Um, but I feel really, really, really lucky to live in Los Angeles, which is where I grew up and have been an advocate for forever. Uh, I feel uh, very lucky to be here right now where we have some space. Um, I love New York, but I think being in a tiny, small apartment and being on top of people right now, I could see how that could be really scary. And thankfully, uh, I live in a duplex with one neighbor. I don't know a lot of people who live in high rises where um, it's just not part of the culture in LA as much. Uh, and so I think that space gives everybody a little sense of security that maybe is real and maybe isn't, but at least it's there a little bit. Yeah. So a little bit of housekeeping and background on you. Uh, you're the founding editor of Thrillist LA. You're an excellent writer. You've written for The Hollywood Reporter, The LA Times, Billboard, Esquire. Um, you're the co-host of Trip Testers on Travel Channel, and you've been described as a walking music encyclopedia. Hot question. Give me your favorite music fact. It can um, be about anyone, anytime, anyplace. Oh, I have two. Two of my favorite music facts. Uh, one is that the uh, co-writer of Rex and Effects Rump Shaker, the 90s uh, uh, hip-hop hit, was Pharrell Williams. It was his first number one. He was 17 when he wrote it. 
and I love busting that fact out. And the other one is also a hip hop fact, uh, which is that that iconic bass line on Young MC's Bust a Move uh, was played by Flea, who also played all of the bass on Jagged Little Pill, the Alanis Morissette record. So there's some useless trivia for you. You were so ready with that. I'm so impressed. As you were saying you, it, you, I was you, like, you, you, I know my answer to this question. You you had you had that ready to go. Um, as you know, as uh, a great writer and a, a music and, and food lover, you know, a, as just a bon, bon vivant in those two areas, what are you really mourning at this time? What are you really missing? And, and you know, if you could sacrifice everything else, what could you go for? I mean, I've been playing music since I was a kid, and the band that I'm currently in is called Black Crystal Wolf Kids, and we play indie rock covers, and we get to play sometimes for thousands of people, and sometimes for hundreds of people, and sometimes for tens of people. I would give anything to play a show in a room for four people right now. There's nothing I like more than being on stage with my band members and um, and playing. It's my favorite thing in the world to do. Playing live is my favorite thing in the world to do. Watching other people play live is my second favorite thing in the world to do. And a world without concerts has been a really, really difficult world for me to wrap my head around. Um, the, the food side of it uh, is also obviously devastating. I mean, talking to my friends in the industry, uh, I'm involved with a couple of restaurant concepts uh, here that have been struggling. And just understanding, you know, the margins were so low before this and and looking at the big picture of how do restaurants survive, uh, how do food brands survive and what happens next um, and having every day sort of be an, an, an unanswerable moment in that question. Uh, those two things, live music and, uh, and sort of the restaurant world, uh, it's a hard balance between the two. Black Crystal Wolf Kids, great name. Where did it come from? Uh, so the band started almost 10 years ago, and I had had the concept for a couple of years before that, and it was really in the peak of, of indie being a cultural phenomenon. And so at the time, all of the bands that were coming out had those names in it. There was uh, Black Keys and Crystal Castles and Crystal Caverns and Wolf Mother and Wolf Parade and Peanut Butter Wolf and Black Kids and Cool Kids and Cold War Kids. And um, the original idea was that the band name would change, that as the trend in indie rock changed, we were going to learn and we continue to learn new songs all the time, uh, that we change the band name. Um, but that becomes really untenable when people start liking you <laughs> and you have to have a website and you have to sell merch and you have to have people know who you are. Uh, and so it stuck. So it's, uh, you know, I feel like it's also one of those names where if you were sort of an indie kid at any point in time, you get it immediately. And if not, it still just sounds like a silly name. So that works uh, in our favor because we're definitely a, a silly band in some ways. And the big thing about this is that you are an indie rock cover band. What makes a difference between a great band and a great cover band? I think it all has to do with passion for the material. I mean, I think you can tell when somebody's faking it either way. Um, whether you're a great originals band or a great cover band, you have to sell it. And uh, for me with this band, um, I've learned that though I've been writing songs since I was a little kid, that it's really about performing. That's the thing that I love the most. And um, being in a cover band, this is the first cover band I've been in seriously, um, has opened me up to the idea of performance being the number one thing to do. And uh, I think that the thing that sets us apart is A, we play covers that you'll never hear another cover band play that are still songs that everybody knows. Um, everything from LCD Sound Systems, All My Friends, to uh, to float on, to uh, wake up by Arcade Fire. I mean, we try to do sort of like big crowd sing-along anthems. Um, and 
it's it's an experience. I mean, I am all over the stage. The band members are all over the stage. There's a true sense of joy to what we do that, uh, you know, I feel like even some of the bands that wrote the material that we're playing can't exude that joy because it's not actually what the songs are about. And we've distilled it down to it's about both the performance on our end and the joy and passion that we bring to it and getting that joy back from the audience. Um, it's really satisfying for me as a musician uh, in a way I never expected playing covers could be. Can we hear a song? Uh, yeah. Do you want to hear a cover song or you want to hear uh, an original song? Let's do, well, you pick. What do you think, what do you think best exemplifies for people's maybe first introduction to this band? Oh, to Black Crystal Wolf Kids, let's definitely do a cover song. I wish that I had the whole the whole band to do this, but uh, it's actually one of the songs I just mentioned. It's become one of my favorite uh, anthems to play in quarantine that I didn't write. I also wrote a quarantine anthem, and I know we'll get there. But this is, uh, this is my favorite cover song quarantine anthem, uh, I think, right now. Okay, here we have uh, Black Crystal Wolf Kids live on Snacky Tunes in quarantine. Here we go. All right, here we go. That's how it starts. We go back to your house. You check the charts and try to figure it out. And if it's crowded, all the better. Because we know we're gonna be up late. But if you're worried about the weather, then you pick the wrong place to stay. That's how it starts.
except the part where the moral kicks in. Salesforce into the night. And if I made a fool, if I made a fool, if I made a fool on the road, there's always this. And if I'm sued into submission, I could still come home to this. just be uh one of my absolute highlights of this quarantine two fun facts about that song when i was leaving new york with the family that song came on and we turned it all the way up in the car and just like cried because we did not know when we would be back in town uh and then i also happened to have uh, a lyric from that song tattooed on my body so that is the absolute perfect choice oh my uh, god what's people What's the lyric you have tattooed on your body? Uh, to tell the truth, this could be the last time. Uh, I, I, I got into a pretty serious, life-threatening car accident four days after their quote-unquote last concert at um, Madison Square Garden. And the only video that would load in my uh, hospital room, I was like, I left New York, I was in Portland, 
was the video of that performance. And so that's the only thing I watched in the hospital while I was in like intensive care for a number of days. Uh, so that, I mean, beyond that song being just so important to so many people, it is odd to like claim to it, but it, it has many, many, many meanings. Um, well, I, I mean, I think that you have definitely explained the joy of your performance um, and the passion that comes through it. Before we get to your quarantine anthem, I, I do want to ask how you curate your set list. I mean, you do also have Lizzo in there. Uh, you have Lord in there. You've got some M83, uh, some Breeders, some of the Boss. So I'm just curious, you know, when you're playing for the thousands, the hundreds, the tens, or the one in this case, how do you curate a set list to match the audience? What goes into it? It's it's a really, really good question. So when we started the band, uh, my idea was that half of the songs would be songs that everybody knew, and the other half was like my, like, man, it looks, it looks so crazy in retrospect, but like teaching people about the history of indie rock. So we like learned some pavement early and we're gonna, we're gonna learn some Sonic Youth and that sort of stuff. And um, what became really clear is that our job as a cover band is to please the audience. And though, you know, it's not a traditional classic rock cover band, we try to avoid songs in general that you would hear from any other cover band. Um, we also sort of learned pretty quickly that um, to keep the audience's attention and to, to sort of maintain that uh, sort of joyous feel that we had to cater somewhat to the crowd. And so um, as the band's grown in the last 10 years, uh, it's meant expanding the nature of what we do while sort of keeping the core element of our set list intact. So uh, for instance, uh, that you, you mentioned uh, the boss, uh, we were hired to play a 40 year old birthday party for a, a friend of mine. And uh, part of the gig was learning a few songs for him. And one of his requests was Bruce Springsteen's Growing Up. It's a song that I love. Actually, I get chills whenever I hear the live version of that song. And so even though it's not really an indie rock song, uh, you know, it was part of the gig and uh, we learned the song. And I think we've only played it once. Maybe we played it one other time, but that wouldn't be a song that necessarily we'd pull out at a beer festival or a, uh, you know, like a club gig. Um, where usually it's a little more focused on the indie rock element. The Lizzo stuff is a really interesting thing to bring up because I do feel like we've learned a bunch of sort of pop songs that have some sort of credibility element to them. And um, I, I don't know how you feel about Lizzo. I think she's probably my favorite artist of the last five years. Uh, I think that the record, maybe like her and Billie Eilish, um, that record that came out last year, I pumped nonstop. The fact that she's now huge makes me so happy. And um, we had this big debate in the band about which Lizzo song do we learn? And I was sure Juice was gonna be the biggest Lizzo hit. So we learned it pretty early. We learned it before she played Coachella last year. Uh, and we play a Coachella tribute set every year. We learn songs of acts that are playing that year's Coachella. So that's where we debuted that. And then it turned out that Truth Hurts was the bigger song. And our keyboard player is a woman who has an incredible voice. And she said, what if we also learn Truth Hurts? Uh, and played it as a surprise encore at a sort of a big show. And I was completely down with that idea. And now we have two Lizzo songs that come in and out of the set list all the time. And um, I realized that on paper, it sort of doesn't make sense. But when you're in that element of everybody knowing every word to every song, and let's say the set has been uh, float on Mr. Brightside, use somebody, uh, I'm trying to think of some other like big bangers. Uh, wake up and then you go into that opening piano part of Truth Hurts, people go 
absolutely nuts. It's almost like the unexpected element of it, plus the fact that like she's an incredible artist. It's it's not somebody. I mean, we have we have dived into some people that I wouldn't say are the greatest artists ever either, but. Um, she's one of those people that I think everybody can agree on. And so you play that beginning piano part of Truth Hurts, everybody goes nuts. And especially when it's a little unexpected, it's uh, it's so much fun. I think you could also slow it down a little bit with a cover of Jerome. I think people, <laughs> she's big enough now that people would, if I heard that, I you know get take the lights down, make it a very intimate moment. Uh, uh, but no, I, I, I name checked Lizzo and I forgot to mention Billie Eilish too. That, that record came out the week before my wedding and I remember driving around small town uh, Lafayette, Louisiana, just listening to Billy Irish on repeat and like have the fondest memory of that record. Like, uh, and then, you know, she took over the world. Yeah. Um, uh, Jeff Tweedy is one of my favorite. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go on. I was going to say Jeff, Jeff Tweedy is one of my favorite songwriters and has been sort of getting me through quarantine with his uh, Tweedy show with his family every night has been covering Billie Eilish every once in a while and watching Jeff Tweedy sing Billie Eilish songs. Like, A, it gives a lot of legitimacy to that idea of her being an incredible artist, which she is. But watching him sort of manipulate it to make it work for his songwriting style is incredible. Highly recommend checking it out if you're interested in that. Uh, Amazing. And James Blake does a a good cover too. Um, I know that we've talked a lot about cover songs, but you tease the fact that you did write a quarantine anthem Uh, called These Days We Gotta Move. What's the inspiration behind it? How did it come about? Um, And how has the reception been? Yeah, so uh, I've been writing songs since I was a kid and um, really haven't been doing it as much since uh, Black Crystal Wolf Kids has sort of taken over my musical life, but I've been doing it still as a hobby and putting stuff out on SoundCloud and that that kind of thing. And um, I started getting asked to be like a musical guest for Zoom meetings at the beginning of this and started doing some live streams of my own too. And the thing that I miss the most is uh, interaction with an audience and being able to see an audience sing along and feeling that uh, sort of connectivity with an audience. And so I started thinking about like, what's the way to do that with this sort of technology? And um, my idea was to write a song that had dance moves associated with it that was about quarantine, really easy dance moves that you could do on Zoom because the issue with Zoom is that you can't sing along. There's too much of a um, delay between the speaker and the audience. And if you try to interact in a sing-along way, even though it's just a couple seconds, it's really hard. And the first couple of times I did Zoom and was like a musical guest on something, it became very clear that it was a mistake to try to do a sing-along. Um, and so that was where the, the chorus and sort of the overall element of this song came from. Um, and uh, it sort of got workshopped on calls. I would do like a, a call with a bunch of friends and I would play it. And then a friend of mine asked me to be a part of a variety show. And I played it and tried to watch everybody do their moves. Uh, and then I started doing kids shows uh, during this time for friends, kids and started playing it for a bunch of kids. And um, so at this point, I've actually recorded a version of it I'm pretty happy with, and I'm going to drop it sometime very soon, uh, maybe even today. I don't know what I'm, I don't know, I don't know when it's going to go live, but it'll go live some, sometime. And um, I'm really proud of this song. I think it's one of my favorite songs I've written recently. Uh, it's about all of us being stuck at home and not knowing what's next and, and needing to have some sort of joyous moment in every day uh, to get us through it. And the direction I always give people when I play it for a group of people is um, when I say the the sort of elements that are the the dance moves, which are very easy to do them, uh, and then when it's uh, these days we got to move uh, to have a freestyle dance party in your living room or kitchen or wherever you happen to be listening to the song. 
Great. Can you play it for us? I would love to. Yeah, here we go. Amazing. Throw your hands up. And wave them around. Stand up and sit down. Stand up and sit down. These days, we gotta move. We gotta move. Wonderful. Thank you, man. Uh, in addition to being the front man for Black Crystal Wolf Kids, a walking music encyclopedia, and a writer, you are applying to be man of the year for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Uh, can you talk about uh, why you're running for that and what it entails? Um, sure, yeah. I um, sadly have lost uh, both my mom and my grandma to cancer in the last few years. It's uh, Definitely been like a major, major affecting, you know, crazy uh, moment in in my life. They were both really incredible, amazing people. And I was approached by the Leukemia Lymphoma Society to do this campaign. This is long before COVID, um, which is basically like run almost like a political campaign. It's a bunch of people running against each other to raise the most money for the cause. And uh, it just seemed like an incredible opportunity to do something in their honor, to do something to better the world. And, um, you know, to, to really sort of look at what I could do with the network of people that I know to help some other people out who really needed it. 
And then COVID hit. And I sort of second guessed the uh, campaign. It was supposed to start in April. I went through some really like going through my head, is this the right time or the wrong time? And while that was happening, um, they announced that the funds would also help go to cancer patients who needed advocacy and services in the time of COVID. And I think as we all know at this point, um, there's so many hospital beds that are going to COVID patients that people who have other uh, other things that are happening, other medical issues are not getting the beds that they need. And so I realized that not only was it still the right time to do it, that there's never been a time that was more right to do this uh, campaign. And so um, I'm, I'm in the, the deep of it right now. Uh, I'm raising money, which is obviously really hard right now. Um, and I'm really super aware of that. Uh, my goal posts have changed and my expectations have changed. Um, but part of it has been going to people who do amazing things, chefs and musicians and uh, people who are executives and people who do things that are services that they're now stuck at home and maybe can't do or can only do on Zoom calls and asking them to put up auction items uh, on a website that, uh, that I've got access to, uh, to do auctions of those things. So for instance, like a live stream from a band or, or from a, a singer songwriter from their living room for an auction winner or a cooking class with a chef. Um, because I feel like, especially in the music and food industries right now, as we all know, uh, people don't know where their paychecks are coming from necessarily, or are sort of in this wait and see moment, but they want to be doing this thing that they love. And I think that in general, they want to be helping people. And I saw this as an amazing opportunity to do both of those things without really donating anything that wasn't possible to be donated. It's really just a bit of time on that end. Um, so if anybody listening, uh, that has, you know, some sort of effect and, and they want to get involved, uh, they can feel free to drop me an email. It's jeffmillerla at gmail. Um, and there's also a direct donation uh, link, which I'd be happy to send anybody if they do want to donate some money to the campaign and to the cause. Um, but it's something I feel really strongly about, and I'm really proud to be doing it uh, in honor of my mom and my grandma. Incredible. Well, we want to make sure that we have time for one more song. Uh, I know I already dropped your email, but where can people find uh, more information about Black Crystal Wolf Kids and uh follow along and see the ever-evolving set list. Sure. So uh, blackcrystalwolfkids.com is your home for all things Black Crystal Wolf Kids. Uh, we had a ton of stuff scheduled this summer. It's looking like none of it's going to happen. And uh, hopefully as soon as uh, they think it's safe for us to be out, we'll be out playing gigs again. Um, and the set list and uh, song list is up there. Um, and then if you're interested in the Man of the Year campaign, uh, it's bit.ly slash Jeff Miller, M-O-T-Y. Uh, uh, Jeff and Miller and M-O-T-Y are all uh, uppercase. So the, the first letter of Jeff Miller and then M-O-T-Y all uppercase. Amazing. Uh, we want to thank Lindsay from the Lee Initiative and Thomas from Makers Mark for joining us this week as well. Um, thank you for listening to our continuing coverage of the COVID-19 pandemic. If you have a story that you want to share with us or your band that wants to be on the show, please reach out to us info at snackytoons.com or send us a DM on our Instagram account. Uh, can I make a request for the songs? One of two songs you get to pick. Oh, sure. Yeah. Either Hold Steady, Massive Nights or Weezer Say It Ain't So. Oh, oh my God. What a hard decision. I haven't played Massive Nights in so long, but I'm just going to give you like, yeah, I'll play Say It Ain't So just because that's been so Great. long since Massive Nights. Um, but man, Massive Nights is such a great song. I'm trying to think if I even remember how to play it. I don't think I can make my way through the whole song, but 
if you uh, if we ever have a chance to do it again, I would love to play it for you. But let's do Say It Ain't So and have a big, anybody who's listening at home, sing along as loud as you can. Let's do it that way. Great. 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 Well, thank you for turning in. We'll be back next week with another episode of Snacky Tunes here on Heritage Radio. Thanks for, thanks for tuning in. Somebody's hiney is drowning my icebox. Somebody's cold one is giving me chills. Guess I'll just close my eyes. Ah, oh, yeah. Alright. Feels good. Inside. Flip on the telly. With Jimmy, something is bubbling behind my back. The bottle is ready to go. Say it ain't so. Whoa, whoa. My love is a heartbreaker. Say it ain't so.
This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.